Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls, a podcast where we tell you how to have a better life while knowing full well that a better life isn't available to me and none of this matters. <laughs> I'm Nate, and I'm a dominant Enneagram 4. And I'm Matt, and I appreciate your honesty, Nate, but I'm also going to challenge you to do something about those hopeless feelings by making you angry, you son of a bitch, because I'm an Enneagram <laughs> type 8. And of course, the, ah. <laughs> of course, those are stereotypes, and personality stereotypes aren't helpful the Enneagram, however, I think is very helpful, or can be, especially for those who embrace it as a personal spiritual growth tool. And for those that don't know, the Enneagram is a personality typology, kind of like Myers-Briggs, if you've taken that one, if you're like an yeah. ENFJ or whatever. But this uh-huh. one helps decipher the motivations and needs of different types of people. So it's not just your behavior, or uh, it's kind of like what drives it. Um, so we're going to bring on an expert to talk about the Enneagram, but first... But first, we have some new patrons, people who uh, dig deep into their pockets, one coffee a month, support the show. <laughs> uh, if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, the best name for a patron is Katie Cashman. <laughs> it probably is the best name. Thanks for your Cashman. Yeah, yeah thanks for your Cashman. <laughs> that was bad. That was bad. Sorry, Katie. We, uh, <laughs> we have a habit you- of... <laughs> I'm glad you B- laughed. Butchering at it. the the names <laughs> of people who support our show. Right, right. Like, Either we butcher super... them or we kind of or we insult them. Just yeah, straight well, out. people are super generous, and we always just like <laughs> we just do a bad job of thinking. But it's it's from the bottom yeah. of our hearts mm-hmm. that we enjoy reading your names. We're having fun with it because we really like you. Eighty-seven patrons now, Matt. So dang. That's a lot. And one more, one more to the list is Corey Viers, and probably close. We we got one today, Andrew McDonald. Oh, that's my little brother. Your little brother supported little the show, bro. bro. That's very nice. Yeah, I thought he was related to you. I was like, there's got to be a lot of Ma- McDonald's running around out there. Yeah, they're mostly in Canada or Scotland. Do you like McDonald or McDonald? It's McDonald. It's what it's Scottish. You know, it's it's you say both M C or M A C is McDonald. You know. McDonald. All right. All right. <clears throat> What's it like sharing uh, the your last name with the president, the first name of the president? Donald. I know. Well, that's what I, 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 I don't How know. Do I, did, I did something bombastic last night in front of Christy, and I was like, I'm just being McDonald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> You're just full of dad jokes lately, it sounds like. Oh, dude, it's too early in the morning for me to not be. That's like my default nowadays. Yeah, and if you want a lot of dad jokes, you can get our exclusive <laughs> show at patreon.com. We do thing called Troll Talk just for people who support the show. We did an hour-long episode yesterday. Yeah. Um, we talked about all kinds of stuff, answered about 20 questions or so from all you guys. Um, but you get a bunch of uh, uh, unedited content and uh, just a conversation. Just goes to our patrons. And uh, we're going to be releasing Matt's new stuff from his band, The Classic Crime, uh, soon. So if you want to hear unreleased music and uh, no one else can hear it first but you, 
check it out. Patreon.com slash Don't Feed the Trolls. Yeah, also, we uh, Nate just upgraded our website. It looks nice and fresh. We got a new blog up there. So if you want to go to uh, trollspodcast.com, you can check out our blog. It's the first page. And our buddy John, Sh- John Schneck has uh, committed to writing a blog post there. And it's all about minimalism. So if you're into that topic and you, you heard that podcast, go read that. It's in, an in, encouraging blog for people who are, are on that journey. And then also, if you click the donate button on the website, it will go straight to our Patreon. Awesome. Yeah. We're going to be uh, getting more people to write articles and try to share those around and more ways to fight off those trolls exactly. that uh, tend to creep up in all various ways. But sometimes articles are the best way to, I don't know, those seem to get shared the most on Facebook. Right. Just It drives, so. drives the point home. Yeah. And uh, a lot of our guests, it's kind of a cool way for them to kind of come back and participate in the troll starving in a different way. Right. So. Familiar faces. John, um, John Schneck. And then we have Dan Koch, who was a guest on the show. He's written a blog, and we're going to be posting that soon as well. So lots of stuff planned at trollspodcast.com. Last thing before we introduce our topic, uh, our friend Matt Carter is producing a podcast called Stronger Marriages. And it's a podcast focused on helping couples build stronger marriages. We don't do ads on the show often, um, ever, really. But this is yeah, a friend of ours, and we feel like we feel like we're we believe in this uh cause actually christy and i were on an episode so that's why we're sharing it as well it's hosted by our friends uh melanie and seth studley and i know we don't normally do this but here is the commercial for stronger marriages my name is melanie studley and seven years ago i wanted to divorce my husband seth who happens to be a therapist however we did not get a divorce instead we documented the process of repairing our nearly failed marriage Part of the power is it's so unspoken. Like, you're such a jerk about it. I would rather be divorced than fight like this all the time. So join us as we interview couples, therapists, doctors, and more on the all-new Stronger Marriages podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or visit strongermarriages.com forward slash podcast. So, Nate, I took my first Enneagram test in July of 2015 to mixed results. Because of that, I didn't reinvestigate it until just recently. Like, I, I tested as a seven, and I thought, oh, that's great. That's me. I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast, and I like, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy that has all the sauces at the restaurant. I'm the buffet guy. I'm the new adventure guy. I need new levels of stuff I need to be doing. And it kind of just confirmed the way I like to see myself. Um, yeah. So I was like, okay, that's me. I'm done. And I stopped looking into it. And then I didn't really reinvestigate until just recently. Uh, at the end of 2016. And it took about a month of reading and listening and waffling to actually find my type. And the more I learned, the more I realized how deep the Enneagram goes. Um, Hmm. It just rings Hmm. deeply true. And I think when you read your type, and you probably experienced this too, there's a level of humiliation that goes along with it. It's like, oh, I don't want to be me. And I don't. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't want to be an eight. But I am. And uh, so personality, you know, short for or uh, long for persona, which is derived from the Greek word for mask. So your Enneagram type is technically what you're not. It's the mask you wear to protect who you are. And Mm. I I keep thinking about how dangerous this could be if it was weaponized to like manipulate people. And I don't know, who knows? Maybe that's why it's been kept secret for so long. Like it's, it's been kind of oral traditions passed down through the generations. Um, But the best way I've heard the Enneagram described is as a map of personas. 
And if you study the map, you can become like an expert cartographer who never actually travels anywhere. And I think a lot of people are on the surface level with it. But the point of having a map is to use it, to actually get on the roads and go on a journey towards a destination. And I think that's what I'm interested in. I know what you guys are thinking. Usually Matt is the skeptic, and uh, I tend to be the believer. But you seem really into this, and uh, there really isn't much scientific data on it yet. Just some psychology and a lot of different correlated ideas from guys like Thomas Merton, our inspiration for Rain and Rhinoceros episode, and a long, mysterious history. You're right. I'm more of a skeptic, and I want proof before I buy into something. But recently, through the help of this podcast, exactly, even, I've tried (laughs) to keep an open mind, even through, you know, listening to stories about Bigfoot, and reserve judgment until I get all the information. Uh, So last week, I ended up shelling out, or a couple weeks ago, actually, I ended up shelling out some money for my wife and I to go to an Enneagram uh, workshop with a teacher named Chris Hewitt's. And I have to say, I still don't have all the information. It's deep. Sometimes it seems strangely detailed with weird numerology, which Nate, you might like. And other times just Mm. profoundly true when I look at my life's experience. And I feel I'm too far in and it can only be helpful at this point if I go all the way into it. Yeah, that's so eight of you. (laughs) But the Enneagram is dense. There's lots of books on it. Some are good. Some are not so good. Uh, writing on the Enneagram is a new phenomenon. It's kind of like, sometimes it's like health. It's like there's a lot of people who know a lot about health, and there's a lot of people who are just like talking about it. Yeah. Um, so many books. I mean, you see a doctor, he's going to tell you one thing, go see another doctor, he's going to tell you a lot of right. things. So it's not, it's not like, it, it's a lot like that. It's, it's, it's just all over the place. But there's some people who are really good at it. But uh, we're not going to cover the whole topic. We're going to kind of do like an introduction to Enneagram. A lot of you guys might listen to the Liturgist podcast. They did a thing on it, and... Uh, Basically, on Don't Feed the Trolls, we just kind of regurgitate smarter people's information, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, much of the Enneagram deals with the understanding of our basic fears, desires, passions, fixations, and just screams troll starvers. So uh, it does... I don't think the liturgist has the monopoly on the Enneagram. <laughs> well, no one does. It's not owned by anybody. It's, uh, you know, it's got this crazy ancient history. And, uh, and there is no consensus. You know, it's based on, uh, you know, analysis and opinion, really. It's in psychology. So there's no mm. data. It's just a bunch of people saying, this is what we think it is. And people have agreed on the types. But there's a lot of subtypes and different expressions that people disagree on still. So it's, uh, you know. It's kind of like your spiritual life. There's a lot of evidence to uh, invest in a spiritual life. But at the same time, there's not a lot of raw data. Right. To say specifically right. what you're investing in is actually Right. We can get into true? that. I think, the, yeah. I think the Bible is kind of a map, just like the Enneagram, and, and you can be a cartographer just focused on the map. But until it becomes enfleshed, until the incarnation of the Word is made flesh in your life, and you do something about your beliefs, then it's, it's just empty. And so that's what I'm trying to do with the Enneagram. I'm trying to take this map and, and go on a journey. Wow. So it's a big topic. Let's not waste any time. Let's bring on our guest. Because you, you've got personality. Walk with personality. Talk with personality. Smile with personality. Charm with personality. Love personality. And plus you got a great big heart. So over and over and over. Oh, I'll be a fool for you. 
Welcome, Enneagram coach and expert Beth McCord to the podcast. Welcome, Beth. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, can I call you an expert? It seems like I, I looked at your uh, your website, Enneagram Coach, yourenneagramcoach.com, right? Right, that's and, it. Mm-hmm. And I saw that you were certified in a number of different trainings, and so I just assu- I'm just assuming now that you're an expert. Yes, that would be fine. <laughs> Great. Well, we've invited you on the show because we would like to have an introductory uh, profile of the Enneagram for our listeners, uh, just to kind of describe what is the Enneagram, and um, we can kind of go through the types and all that. But just as a first question, what is the Enneagram? Exactly. That's a great question. Well, first, let's start with the word Enneagram, because that in itself is kind of like, what is this word? Well, it's a Greek word, and Ennea simply means nine, and gram means diagram. So since our viewers cannot see the symbol, it is a nine-pointed star, kind of looks a little bit different, But the nine points represent nine basic types of personality. So really, it's nine views of the world, nine different perspectives. So we're Mm -hmm. really answering in the Enneagram why we think, why we feel, and why we behave in very particular ways. And the Enneagram is going to show us what drives us and what's the motives behind all of those actions. And it's very different for each personality type yeah and what and what separates this from like myers-briggs or other things that are similar yeah that's a great question um so all of those other assessments and tests and personality typologies are great and i think all of them have um their own niche their their own place um but what's different is that you know like the myers-briggs it's telling you your preferences uh the strength finders is telling you what you naturally gravitate towards and what you're strong at Um, The Enneagram, like I just said, is explaining why you do what you do. So it's getting to the core, the inside, what motivates and drives us to, you know, to be extrovert or not to be extrovert. Um, So the question is why, the motive. Right. It kind of sounds like the Enneagram knows you better than you know yourself. (laughs) Absolutely. Actually, when you read the Enneagram for the first time and you definitely land on your type, first of all, you're going to think someone has gone into your bedroom, opened your nightstand, and took out your internal diary. Yeah. It can be a little daunting and creepy all at the same time. It can time. be humiliating, yet, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, it can be very liberating, for sure. So how how does one use the Enneagram? Is it, uh, you know, I, I consider it a map or a tool to help you on mm-hmm. in your personal uh, journey or spiritual growth journey. How do you use it to become a better version of your number? Well, how I like to use it, especially in the day and age that we're in, you're absolutely right. It is a map of your internal world. But how I like to describe it is a GPS. So it's your internal GPS system. And you, mm. in order to use a GPS, so like if I were to sit down with my parents who do not know how to use a GPS and needed to explain it to them, first, the GPS has to know what your current location is in order to tell you where to go because, you know, being from Nashville, if I want to get to Kansas city where my parents live, but I put coordinates in from Chicago to uh, Kansas city, that's not going to do me any good. I need the GPS to know my current location, which is my main Enneagram type. Now Mm. the Enneagram also is going to tell you your best destination for your personality type, what it looks like to be the, like you said, the best version of yourself. And, um, so why that's important is 
when you have a clear path, a clear understanding of where you should be heading, the Enneagram is also going to tell you when you're veering off course, which is super helpful. So just like you think about Mm -hmm. you're driving down the highway towards your best destination and you start to fall asleep or get distracted in life like we all do every single day. The Enneagram is that rumble strip on the side of the highway. And it's going to wake you up, hopefully, for paying attention. And it's going to tell you when you're starting to veer off and head into one of those ditches that we constantly find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And it's going to hopefully wake you up and go, oh, yeah, you know what? When I keep doing that, it Mm. it puts me in a place I don't like. Right. So the Enneagram is going to tell you, hey, you're kind of veering off course again. Let's get you back on track. And then it's going to help you to know where you want to go. Right. And so each number has a has a high side and a low side, right? And those yep. both can mm-hmm. both can help like the low side can help you know when you need to address or be self-aware of yes. what's going on. And I I, I went to a workshop with um uh Enneagram teacher Chris Hewerts. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of him, but yep. he, uh, he he was teach he was he said it this way. It's like when you're you're falling out of a tree and you grab the branch. Mm-hmm. So to like to grab for that branch, that branch is your yep. low side and it's not necessarily bad. It's good to grab the branch to help break your fall, mm-hmm. but use that as, as a, as a path backward, back to, yep. back to health. And that's kind yep. of like, yeah, you understand. And that's what, what I love about the Enneagram is that it really makes you face and be self-aware with your low side or the things that you do to cope with stress and what yep. they would call disintegration. And that mm. I think is like, that's the humiliating part of it is when you're reading that aspect of yourself. Yeah. And it, you know, it is hard to sometimes embrace, you know, the not so great qualities that we have, but the fact that we have something that can show us exactly what that looks like, it is also freeing because when you start doing those habitual habits and thought patterns and all that stuff, you can wake up and go, you know what? I really do not enjoy the results that come from that. I actually have the tools and the resources at my disposal to know what is the better path to go on. But not only that, if you're married or you have a good friend or even your kids that are older, like I have teenagers, they know what mom looks like when she's headed down the wrong path. Right. And prayerfully and thankfully, a lot of times they're very gracious and they know we have discussions and say, Hey, you know, my mom's like this, you know, it's not about you. It's because of the internal dialogue that's going inside her. And so hopefully they'll give me a little bit more grace and space and hopefully kind of point out gently when I'm doing that. So maybe I can correct the path um, that I'm in and also vice versa. I can do that with my kids because I know their types now. Right. And that's the thing that I love about the Enneagram is you're not just learning about yourself. You're learning about all the different types around the circle and mm-hmm. you're learning to have empathy for the way different people process things or what's going on in yep. their life. And, and just understanding that every, every number, every type has a low side. And to recognize that as not an affront or an attack, um, right. but just them acting or reacting out of whatever their instinct is. Um, and so let's, let's go through the nine types so we can understand kind of what, what the nine types are and maybe if we could start with the triads, I think that was helpful for me yeah. to understand the the collection of their each each type. There's three types in one triad, so I don't know. You probably explained it better than me, but uh, let's let's introduce the nine the nine types. To yeah. People. So the enneagram, um, for those that can't see it, there are nine types in a circle with that nine pointed star um, in the middle, 
And the lines are paths of growth and stress that we kind of just talked about. Um, but in that circle with the nine types, we first break it up into three sets of three, which are called the triads. And these represent the three centers of intelligence. There's the gut center, the heart center, and the thinking center. And the eights, type eights, type nines, and type ones, they're at the very top of this circle, and they are part of the gut uh, center or the mm-hmm. instinctual center. And they struggle with the emotional imbalance of anger and they desire justice. Now that doesn't mean that any of the other types don't, they don't struggle with anger or they don't want justice. This is an imbalance in those desires and reactions. Now what's interesting is that the eights will show their anger uh, very easily. It's very visceral and it happens uh-huh. very fast. It's not ready, ready, aim, fire. It's just fire. Later, they might think back and go, you know what, maybe I could have done that a little differently. Sometimes they'll think about it and sometimes they won't. Um, But it's very visceral and it happens uh, very fast. The nines fall asleep to their anger and suppress it because nines want peace and harmony. So they are Hmm. just looking for to not experience the anger that is an instinctual pattern for them. So they suppress it. So a lot of times nines will say, I'm not angry. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, actually, deep down, a lot of times they feel overlooked and unimportant, which actually causes this anger of injustice. But again, they fall asleep to it, so they won't experience mm. it. Um, and then the type ones, they um, their anger is more resentful or resentment towards others because they repress their anger because that's bad and they don't like that. And so they're going to repress it, but it's going to come out sideways as kind of being edgy, maybe prickly, criticism, and judgment. So that's how the three of those kind of deal with the emotion of anger. Mm-hmm. Now, the heart center, those are the types two, three, and four. And they are they struggle with the imbalance emotion of shame, and they desire significance or a very uh, particular identity. Now, when it comes to feelings, the twos are are really not dealing with their own feelings. They are feeling everyone else's feelings. And they're trying to see how they can care and help for those that are around them because they're so empathetic towards others. They feel other people's pains. And so in order to calm that, they want to help and serve and to get the appreciation and love for doing that. Uh, So they they want the image that they are the most helpful, caring, nurturing person. Now the threes, on the other hand, they are the most success-oriented, wanting to achieve, look good. So that's the image they're wanting to portray. But in order to do that, in any given situation they're in, they will shapeshift into being that most successful image. But to do that, they have to actually push their feelings aside because feelings get in the way of whatever success they're striving for. So they typically have a very hard time feeling and expressing emotions because they, their whole life they've pushed it aside to be the successful image. Now, the fours, they feel all of their emotions, and they have a vast variety of emotions, and they're feeling them all. Um, And the image that they're trying to portray is of someone being unique, different, and special in order to get the love and and affection that they're looking for. Crap. (laughs) Someone's caught. (laughs) The last triad is uh, the thinking triad, and this is five, six, and sevens, and they deal with the emotional struggle of um, anxiety 
and they also desire security. Now, the fives feel that they're not capable and competent, so that's where their anxiety comes from. So they pull back from the world, and they try to learn as much as they can, at least a little bit of everything, and I mean everything, and then they usually specialize in some sort of field. And they feel like if they do that, then maybe they'll be competent and capable to go outside in the world and do. Now, the sixes have the anxiety that we typically think of. You know, they're, they are fear of, you know, um, fear itself, chaos, uncertainty, not being guided and supported. Just your kind of everyday worst case scenario anxiety is what sixes feel. So they are looking for guidance and security and support to calm the anxiety down. And then the sevens, their anxiety comes from their internal world. They do not want to deal with boredom, missing out on anything, internal pain, struggle, negativity, all of those things they want to run away from. So that's anxiety internal. So they go out in the world to fill their life up with stimulation, experiences, adventures, anything fun. That's what they're looking for. So they don't have to deal with the anxiety that's already uh, inside. So hmm. that is just a quick overview of the gut feeling and thinking triads. And also known as, uh, they would say, body, heart, and mind. Yep. Um, yep. That's or another way of saying that. if you're going from the top, maybe instinctual mm-hmm. um, yep. versus, yeah, I, there's a lot of different, and that's what I like about the Enneagram is that there, there isn't consensus. I, I think sometimes you want consensus out of something, but there's a lot of different ways to express it. And because we're using language, which is so fluid, you kind of have yeah. to read things twice. And then you have to read a bunch of different things to really get a, a 360 degree picture of what it is. Because I could, like right. you said, you could say I'm, you could take it at surface value and say I'm a nine, but or or someone could say you're a nine, but I'm not angry. Then you have right. to realize what that what it means by anger. And that right. you're actually falling asleep to it. Um, yeah. So, so could could you give, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, a brief, now that we went through the triads, could you give mm-hmm. like a brief uh, synopsis of each number as far as maybe what they're known as, generally speaking? So I have, you know, a teacher that I really enjoyed her take on it. Um, her name's Catherine Faber, and she does a two-word descriptor because I feel it just gives a fuller um uh, description of each type. Okay. So I'll go over each of those. So the type one is called the moral perfectionist. Type two is the supportive advisor. Hmm. Type three is the successful achiever. Type four is the romantic individualist. Type five is the investigative thinker. Type six is the loyal guardian. Type seven, the entertaining optimist. Type eight the protective challenger and type nine, the peaceful mediator. I feel like everyone's probably thinking of somebody they know already in their mind, either if they're like, Oh, that sounds like my mom. Oh, that sounds like my wife or whatever. Like think that's, there's levels of self-awareness where people probably are afraid of the Enneagram because they just don't even want to know. Do you find certain personalities, certain numbers or don't want to take the test or want to know more about themselves? I would say there's probably a few that are more hesitant, but at the same time, I would say it has more to do with levels of development than it does um, a specific t- type. I mean, I, I do think type matters, yeah. um, but if you're a healthy person, which means usually people are 
already doing self-observation and growing and transforming, they're going to be much more open to it. But those that are probably, we call it autopilot um, or average, you know, zone of season. Um, but then also definitely if you're unhealthy, you're probably not, you know, shopping for growth. You know, you're yeah. definitely stuck. Well, that's, that's the thing. People generally ask that question. They go, well, what number is bad with another, you know, if you, if you're, if you're one number, are you bad with your spouse? Who's a, who's a different number. And the way that I come to understand it is that if you're unhealthy in whatever type you are, it's, you're, you're not going to have healthy relationships. And so you first have to deal with your own level of health. Exactly. So perfect example with type eights, you know, at the very high healthy level, you got someone, you know, of course we're all, you know, not perfect, but at the high side would be like a Martin Luther King Jr. Right. You know, he paved a path for the civil rights movement. He was able to take on um, the the brunt force of the opposition. Right. Whereas at the very lower level, you got someone like Stalin. You know, I mean, <laughs> very yeah. uh, different um, levels of health, but same personality type, same. Right. Internal motivations or what I call it like a record player in your mind. Right. That's going wow. on. But one person's taking advantage of growth and transformation and the other person's allowing the personality to run with it. Right. And that's the thing is there's no bad there's no bad type. And that's what people need to understand. Right. And, and exactly. also I'll, just one thing I was worried when I first started learning about the Enneagram that I would be placed in a box. And so when I mm-hmm. when, because I am very individualistic and right. um. I don't want to be pegged down or controlled as an eight. I was like, ah, they, they, nobody understands me, man. Um, <laughs> which was so wrong. Yep. I was in a box. And that's what, yep. that, one of the things that Richard Rohr said. He's like, we're not, we're not trying to put you in a box. We're telling you, you are in a box and we're telling you how to get out we're of getting, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah, and once I, real, I like that. Yeah. In fact, we're, we're helping you to be your true authentic self. Right. Versus the habitual patterns that your personality is trying to control you. That's the beauty of it. So if you're really wanting to be authentic and genuine, this actually is the vehicle for that. Yeah. Cause I, I agree with you, Matt, as a sort of individualist, I kind of go, Oh no, like I don't want to be put in a box at all, but yeah. it, it's, it's, it's helpful to know that it gets you out of the box and you can kind of experience your life better. Um, or well, just in relationships with, with people that you're, constantly with every day oh know? yeah like i'm a i'm an eight and my my wife is a one mm-hmm. and we it took a while to discover who she was we thought she was a six for a while and she was like waffling she's like no i don't you know i don't kind of do things that sixes do um but she has struggled with anxiety in the past and so it's kind of helpful to look at your uh direction of disintegration or your stress like what happens on your low side because that seems to i helps you identify your number a little better because it's a little bit more specific and exactly. it's it's more dramatic in your life um mm-hmm. so we were doing that but anyways we found out that she was a one and for all the years that we were married you know me i'm always throwing arrows and darts and challenging people because i want to get to the i want to get behind the veneer i want the unvarnished truth as an eight i'm realizing that that's why i do that now right. but mm-hmm. uh but throwing darts or arrows at my wife has, <laughs> has not worked <laughs> very well in our relationship because i right. found that she was like just hypersensitive to criticism yes. and you know it devastates her and the reality of that is because I didn't realize her super ego or her inner critic was so loud and so um so critical of her of her own self 
that that any criticism Uh from me would just confirm that inner critics uh you know lies essentially and and really devastate her and so Mm -hmm. like to understand an inner relationship that i need to work on what i'm doing there and uh and kind of understand that her inner critic no one's no one's more critical of herself than she is and Absolutely. so uh, I don't need to say anything. She's already right. said it a thousand times in her head, you know, like yeah. I don't need to say, hey, you did that wrong or whatever. Right. Um, so that's been really helpful in our relationship, just understanding. And then her looking at me and going, oh, yeah, when Matt freaks out, um, <laughs> he just needs to ventilate some anger. It's not about me <laughs> at all. Right. It's just right. I just need to get it out. And it's not it's not it's just a general ventilation. And then I'm back right. to normal and I'm fine. Um, so it's just, like you said, it's about having grace for the other people in your life and going, okay, this is not about me. And when Salome danced and had the boys in trance, no doubt it must have been easy to see that she knew how to use her personality when i do my presentations one of the slides i put up has nine different classes and they all have different colored lenses and most people have in one time in their life or another put on some glasses that have like a blue shade or something and it's like wow everything really does look different well, the whole mm-hmm. point is when we are using the Enneagram in relationships is that it's not that, so Matt, you're, you're an eight and I'm not yep. an eight because I think you were going to guess my number, but um, in order for me Oops. to understand you as an eight, I, I need to put those glasses on. That doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean I think that what you're doing is fine in the moment, but it helps mm-hmm. me to understand why you might be doing what you're doing and to hopefully give you some more grace, mercy, understanding, and hopefully even forgiveness when it's needed. Man, I can think of an exact an exact example of that because I think, Matt, you were on some angry tirade on Facebook one day on my birthday of all days and didn't remember <laughs> it was my birthday and I said something about it and then months later you're like, I missed your birthday? And I was really like... I was like, dude, I do a podcast with this guy every day, pretty much. And he didn't even <gasps> say anything about my birthday. And I was I like, kind of mad at you. Sorry, and then I remember dude. later you apologized. And I, but we, this was after I read about the Enneagram and you were telling me about you being an eight. And I actually applied all that going, he was just on an angry tirade that day. And he totally tunnel visioned his way. Just forgot about me for a second. But, and I was way over emotional about it. Yeah, people, like, oh, in the an- people in the anger or the gut triad are, are self-forgetting. Yeah. And maybe you can talk about that kind of the, the 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 traits of the triads. I've heard it I've heard it said a number of different ways like uh, they delete themselves. I think a guy once said in the in the gut triad. Yeah, I mean they're just they're really um the anger kind of takes over and so the eight, you know, they they actually have kind of it's a confrontational intimacy. You know, so they actually find confrontational confrontation almost, um, inviting in relationship, which of course then the type nines are the complete opposite. They don't want anything to do with conflict. And so like a nine would be a great example in deleting themselves. They, in order to 
go along to get along and have peace and harmony, they forget themselves and their own right. desires and passions in order to merge with others. Right. And so that's an example of kind of the the whole self-forgetting. And so they need to come back and, and be more in tune with who they really are instead of allowing the anger, with whichever way they express it, to be the one that takes over. Right. And what would a one, how, how does a one kind of self-forget? Well, they, they kind of self-forget just they're so critical of themselves that they actually do really great stuff. And so for them to recognize kind of who they really are fundamentally and not to forget. So they're constantly thinking they're bad and should do this and shouldn't do that. To remember that they are good, you know, they, that they desire to do good is a really hard thing for them. So to give themselves grace, to give themselves mercy um, would really allow them to shine. And right. to free themselves from this kind of almost this um, kind of chains that they have going on. And in fact, like when you're talking, it's like a megaphone, the inner critic they have. It is literally screaming in their ear or sometimes because, you know, like you can think of it as like a bat just beating themselves over the head. Mm -hmm. And if you bring a bat in, too, <laughs> <that's> just, <laughs> it's brutal. Just yeah. Too much. Yeah. Understanding too much. that yeah. about my wife is like, Way OK, I, I need to really stop that. <laughs> yeah. Because for me, conflict, like you said, conflict is connection. So sometimes yeah, I'm trying yeah. to connect through stirring something up or being critical. But that's not the way that she's going to connect with and, me. But I think what's even more beautiful is that you can learn a new way to do the same thing. Right. Like it doesn't have to be conflict the way you've always seen it or you've always enjoyed it. It can be, you know, like a dialogue, a debate, but but it's set up in a way that, hey, I would really like to talk about this subject and I know right. that I can come across as confrontational, but can we just have a good banter? Right. And, and we do. You and know we, ahead of time. <laughs> we used to fight so hard and, and we, so we learned to fight better over the years because we learned what worked <laughs> over the years and, and, uh, yeah. and we still, we still, um, we still can do that. And I think it's yeah. overall become a healthy thing in our life. Um, I yeah. think it has caused us to be more connected and I think part of the reason why I married her was that she was strong, willed, and had yeah. opinions, and that right. that she could challenge me, and I couldn't control or dominate her, and that was fascinating for me, right? Like, um, but one of the things I heard about eights, which I thought was um, while we're in this triad, which I thought was really interesting, was I heard um, I think it was Suzanne Stabile talk about uh -huh. how. Um, maybe her one of her kids is an eight and said, mm -hmm. I don't think the golden rule applies to me mm -hmm. because I treat people how I want to be treated and it doesn't go well because eights, exactly. they want to be, I want people to come Confronted. at me. Yeah. I want yeah. people to come fight me because that's how I feel connected to people. And so I go right. out looking for fights, you know, arguments, debates, you know, trying to get to know people. That's my kind of method. And people ah. are like, whoa, coming on too strong, dude. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, and off. you don't even recognize it. I don't you know? even know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, eights don't really understand the strength and the intensity that they bring. It's just normal to them. And so, <clears throat> of course, there's some personality types that that's like, I call, actually, I call it the eight a snowplow. And I'm from the Midwest and um, I live in Nashville now. But um, if you don't have a snowplow, 
to get like, you know, four or five, eight inches of snow off the highway. You're not going to the grocery store. You're not going to the hospital. The police can't get anywhere. So we have to have these big, massive snow plows to push the snow. <laughs> that's, that's you, Matt, right? You're the snow plow. <laughs> so the problem, though, is when an eight doesn't see who's in front of them, whether it's a car, maybe a person, <laughs> they'll plow over because they're so focused, so intense on whatever <laughs> tasks they have in front of them. They just yeah. plow over. And if they're not doing very well, let's say kind of autopilot um, or unhealthy, they're going to look back and go, why were you in the road? Like, sorry, like, you know, you yeah. shouldn't have been in the road. Now, when they're healthy, we're talking about Martin Luther King Jr., they're going to start seeing the people in front of them because they've done self-work and they understand how they can be. And they're going to start to tell themselves, no, wait, see who's in front of you. Okay, there's a few people in front of me. And they're going to take the time to get those people and put them behind them and then plow the path. Right. And that's yeah. the moving to the healthy side of type two, which we haven't gotten there. But there, that's why the lines matter and knowing which way you're in growth and which way you're in stress, all of that. Right. It's funny. All I can all I can think about Matt is is the Homer Simpson episode when he started the snowplow business and you're just going down the road <laughs> plowing everyone out of the way. Like I mean it's almost like blinders on, right? You know, like yeah. we're just going for Yeah. I think what's interesting to me is when you 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 speak historically of certain characters. Like I keep thinking I'm a big picture person, so I'm always trying to find the big picture to explain things or figure it out for myself. Is Jesus like the ultimate out of the box any like he's all nine types, like you know, I mean, like, I don't think we can honor him well by picking him in any of the types in the sense of, yeah, I mean, I think every type at their very glorious state, which we've never seen, except for maybe in him, that may represent Christ. But I think he's much more than that. Um, sure. uh, there are books written on that, right? Like the people write the books of like Jesus displayed the the strength of all the nine types, you know, in his ministry and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that that's okay to say, but I just, I think he's so much more than just mm -hmm. any personality or any nine types. And, and especially since we haven't been with him to experience and see it, it's really hard right. to, hard to, diagnose. to really say. Yeah. Do you, so like if you're reading a history book or you're watching a character on a TV show, do you start to do the like, oh, that person, oh, the Gilmore Girls, you know, Lorelai <laughs> is so a six, you know what I mean? Or whatever. <laughs> right, right. One of my teachers is like, the Gilmore Girls, girls is like full of sixes. But um, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> but at the same time, the more I actually get into the Enneagram, the more I work with clients, the more it, you really see how it's not as easy as first glance. Like right. it, there's so many layers and complexities because the, the, and we haven't gotten into this, but I'm just going to say it, the one-to-one four, so there's three different types of each four or each types, the one to one four looks like an eight. Yeah. So, you know, the counterphobic six looks like an eight. So right. Or the social two can look like an eight, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, I, I just really hold any of that so loosely because the person, every person has to be the one to name themselves because only they know the internal motivations that are going on. So yeah. I all really warn people don't go typing your spouse or your children yeah well yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's about go deal with yourself first and i think for me specifically i mean I, it took me a year and a half after mm -hmm. under uh, after taking my first free test online and getting mixed results uh, to really be self-aware enough i had to be miles into the journey to be self-aware enough to know to actually see my number because it's like i didn't want to see it 
Yeah, and so, sure. So you can't just you take a test online. <laughs> when you find your number, it's like the one you don't want. Right. <laughs> it hits home. What is that in people? Like, I remember the first time I like really gave up and decided I'm going to go to counseling and figure out some things about myself. There was, I remember there was a day I was driving home from like my third session when I just felt like the happiest person on earth because I finally got to a place where I was like, I want to know all my faults. I want to know all my problems. I want to know what makes me go together. And it took, it took like 28 years, 29 years to get to that point. Um, do you see a shift in people? Like, like when they decide, oh, that's it. That's why I do what I do. And they sort of love it. Do they all, does everyone sort of embrace it at, at once they see it? If they're into transformation, like, you know, like we talked about earlier, if they're in a good place and plus if they have relationships around them that are supportive, I think that helps. But, you know, there are some types like type threes really have a harder time going to counseling, but then they'll come to coaching, you know, so Hmm. it kind of depends on maybe how it's framed. Right. So whereas a type six, you know, actually Hmm. I have a lot of type sixes that are perfectly fine going to counseling because it allows them to. Um, vent or express a lot of the stresses and anxieties that they're dealing with. Um, so I think some types feel a little bit more comfortable than others starting the process. But I think every type, if they're willing to surrender and to depend on God to transform them, he's going to do amazing work that we can't ever expect. So we talked about the gut triad, the eight nines and ones, and how they uh, tend to de- uh, delete themselves or f- their self-forgetting or they forget forget their needs and wants, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move over to the heart triad, the twos, threes, and fours, and talk about, and uh, often their primary emotion is shame, right? That's the driver yeah. that's imbalanced. And uh, I heard someone say that they reject themselves. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit more about that? <clears throat> Yeah, so the, the twos, you know, they reject themselves because they, they feel that they aren't loving enough or serving enough and so and they that people will not want them or love them for just being themselves. So in order for them to get the love, appreciation, and gratitude, affirmation that their heart starves for, they they feel that they have to serve, give advice, help, support, care, whatever word you want to put to it. If they do those things, then people they're hoping will go, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. You're so wonderful. You're so kind. And that for a short bit of second will fill them up. But, of course, that's fleeting. So they have to do it again and again and again. Um, now, the, the threes, they feel um, the fear that they're not valued, worthwhile, um, admired, respectable, and so they have the shame around that. So they're going to try their best to be literally the best, to achieve, to be successful, to be the most admired person. And you have to remember, this is in any um, cultural dynamic. So what's successful in my culture or my church is very different than maybe a different city or a different town. And right. so it's whatever that person is surrounded, they'll shape shift into what is admirable there. Right. A businessman three would look different than a clergy three. Right. In a lot of different exactly. ways, because there's, there's different metrics for what success looks like. Exactly. Yeah. And they can go into any situation. And Ian Crone in the book, The Road Back to You, he talks about his dad being a three, knows nothing about mechanics, but he was you know, talking to some auto shop guys. And he said, you would have thought my dad 
was the expert of all experts, you know, but in a second, they know how to shape shift and to sound, you know, brilliant and successful and all those things. I think my dad's a three too, actually. But uh, yeah, that's funny. That's totally the shape shifting and, and being able to see, read, read the room and see what, what people value and then speak to that and say, I know about that too. Right, right. Now the four, uh. they feel uh, deep down that there's something tragically missing or something fundamentally flawed and that no one understands them and that they're different. So it's kind of, you think about like a big puzzle and you, you've spent all this time putting this puzzle together and kind of like in a sense being authentic and real. And all of a sudden you look down and there's a piece missing in the, in the middle mm-hmm. and it's like, what? And then you look around at everyone else's puzzles and their life. And it's like, they have it all together. Like their life is full and complete. And they, so four is really long. They feel shame that there's this tragic piece missing and they look at everyone else and they long or envy um, everyone else because they think everyone else has it together. So that's mm-hmm. where the shame comes in. So in order to get the love that they desire, they feel they have to put uh, forth a unique or a special um, perspective of themselves to get the love that they uh, so desire. So how would you say a four rejects themselves? Well, they reject themselves in the sense that they feel fundamentally flawed and wrong. So they want to, in some ways, reject that. Right. And, And yet at the same time, they're trying to be very authentic and find this this missing piece, this missing link, who are they? Now, right. the eights are the most authentic on the Enneagram. They say it like it is, blunt, straightforward. They're not trying to be authentic. Eights are authentic. The fours are still trying to find their unique place, their, their special something that they can present to the world. Now, some types aren't even trying to find anything authentic. So the fours are really demonstrating what they find true to themselves. They are displaying that, but it's a constant search. And so they mm-hmm. reject anything other than that might look mundane and boring and commonplace like everyone else. Right. They reject that. Huh. And so they have to present this unique, special something. Hmm. And the the next triad, the head or mind triad, um, five, sixes, and sevens, I've heard it say said that they scare themselves. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. I haven't heard that though. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, I mean, I can speak to it, you know, the, what I can, I don't know what exactly right. that specific, the teaching is, but I can see that the fives, you know, they scare themselves that they don't, they literally think they don't know enough. And if you know a five, it's like, what? Like, yeah. You know, everything. Yeah. Like my uncle is a five and on Thanksgiving day, if I didn't come with a very specific thing I wanted to learn, I was definitely going to be told a variety of things that I don't even didn't even know existed, you know, and things I could care less. Mm-hmm. And he would nuance it and tell me. So I just come like, okay, let's see. I think I want to know about blah, blah, blah. And I'd ask him and he's a cardiologist and by golly, he knew whatever it was. And he had like a whole report in his head and gave it to me. Um, and so they really do know enough, but I bet they scare themselves in the, in the sense that, um, and actually five is really deal a lot of times with darker emotions. And so there's a lot of cynicism and um, scarcity. So I'm just kind of wondering, I, but I'm not sure. I haven't really heard it's like that. A fear that of, maybe a fear of not knowing the answers or fear of not finding out, uncovering sure, yeah, they the really, truth. They really do fear of being incompetent, ignorant, um, not having the knowledge to get out in the world and do. 
And so where we want fives to grow is to move actually to the high side of eight (laughs) and to be more assertive and confident and to just get out there and trust that they actually know enough to do whatever it is that they're needing at the moment. Now, sixes are are next, but I've noticed that it's really hard sometimes to diagnose sixes because there seems to be a a very strong split in the subtypes between phobic and what you call counterphobic sixes, and they behave often very differently, but out of the same need for security and fear. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that? Absolutely. So um, if you think of it as in a spectrum, so it's not just you're one or the other, you're going to land, if you're a six, you're going to land somewhere in the spectrum of phobic and counterphobic. Now, what does that mean? So in this triad, remember the fives, sixes, and sevens are struggling with anxiety. Now the sixes anxiety, like we said, they're scanning the horizon for worst case scenario. So they're really dealing with, you know, this could go wrong or that could go wrong or this is unsafe and that's unsafe. So it's, it's a lot of anxiety that they're carrying around. Now, the phobic sixes, they succumb to that anxiety, and they're going to back up and go, oh, I'm not going to do that because that, you know, something bad might happen. The counterphobic sixes, they move straight into it. Like, they're going to be courageous, and they're going to move in. So an a example that is kind of over the top, but I think you'll get the picture, is skydiving. The phobic six is going to go, no way. I am not skydiving. Yeah. Forget it. The counterphobic six is going to go, yeah, let's go for it. And they're going to go head yeah. on into it. I have to they, because I'm afraid. Yes. <laughs> I, I have to because I'm afraid. I'm going to show right. myself mm-hmm. that I'm not afraid. Right. And yet they are. So it's it's the same internal mechanisms being displayed differently. Hmm. Now, there is, you know, a middle. You know, so some there are some types, sixes, that can kind of vacillate between the two easily. But then there's some that stay very comfortable in the phobic and some that stay more comfortable in the counterphobic. But all of them struggle with anxiety and self-doubt. And they don't really, yeah, they don't trust themselves. They're self-doubt and self-doubt. And I felt like when I was reading Sixes and thinking about my friends, one of the things that popped out was the idea of the committee. Uh, sixes rely heavily on on a multitude of voices to help them make decisions because they don't really trust their own instincts. They don't trust that they know what they're um, they doubt themselves. I wish the inner committee helped them, but I don't think, I don't think <laughs> the inner committee does, doesn't help. So yeah. So the type ones we talked about having a one, like one very strong, loud inner critic, mm-hmm. the type sixes have an inner committee and they're constantly chiming in like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Well, don't forget about this. You know, well, this could happen or that could happen. And it's just, it is constant. And so sometimes they'll even sixes are what I've experienced are the type that always say, I think I'm crazy. And that would make sense, right? If you have all of these internal voices chiming in and you don't know which one to trust or land on, then you go outside and you're asking advice from like maybe friends or parents or bosses or whoever you trust to help you decide, Oh yes, I'm going to take this path. Um, but yeah, I I have a friend, I have a friend who's constantly has to think about something for so long before he can make a decision and he oftentimes has multiple people weigh in on that either, either on group texts, like what should I do? Or even in a group setting saying, guys, what should I do? And then I want to hear everyone's opinion. Whereas like, I would never even consider talking about Dan. Yeah. (laughs) But I would never, (laughs) I would never even ever as an eight consider asking an opinion. I would just do things instinctually from the gut um, because I feel like they should be done. 
So it's just so funny to see that. That's actually a really great point because counterphobic sixes will mistype a lot as type eights hmm. because they move so strong into their fear. Right. It looks like, a, you know, the courageous eights that just move forward. But what we want to find out is, is the person struggling with self-doubt, wanting security, kind of that, should I do this, should I do that, and then moving strong? Because an eight's not going to do that. They're just going to do it. Yeah. You know, either an eight's have strong opinions, they're confident, they don't vacillate. And so that's, if you're dealing with someone, am I a six, am I an eight? That's really where you're going to, is there self-doubt or is there no self-doubt? Sometimes, right. I mean, right, in, in a good way, that can be really good. But sometimes you probably need to pull it back as an eight and probably get advice before sometimes moving so headlong into some things. Whereas the six sometimes needs to be courageous and move forward, even if I, there's a lot of doubt. And I've heard it, I've heard it said that, like, I think back to Susan Stabile, um, mm-hmm. Suzanne, uh, she said that... Uh, I don't know where she got it from, but she said sixes are either at your feet or at your throat. <laughs> and those yeah. are the two phobic, phobic or counterphobic. And so, yes, a six that's at your throat, like against authority, not trusting authority, not feeling secure. Maybe the, the authorities uh, corrupt in some way. So I'm going to attack it. Uh, that can look like an eight a lot of times yeah. because it's yep. the kind of the need to be against something. Right. Um, right. So it's hard to hard to diagnose. It's not just on the surface, like you said. You have exactly. To really go into it. Well, my son, or well, my son is a six, but my husband is a counterphobic six, and he thought he was an eight for a while until he realized that he's a counterphobic six and what's underlying all of that. But he's this, the same way. He'll ask, you know, for advice from lots of people. Like he has thoughts and like I think I want to do this, but let me gather some. Yeah. some information from others and then he'll go and make his decision. Mm-hmm. So, That's yeah, not necessarily so it, bad, right? That's just no. how you behave. It could be a very functional. teachable personality, right? but the high side of six or the healthy side of six that we want them to do is to trust that they actually have really good discernment and right. to trust themselves and to move mm-hmm. forward in that uh, discernment is a really hard thing for them because they're going, well, which, which voice is my true voice? We want them to learn their true voice and discernment and to move forward in that. Did you say, uh, would you say sixes go to in health on their high side? Well, yeah. In health when they're growing is to nine. So sixes, their mind is like a flywheel. It's constantly spinning right. with worst case scenarios. So when they're moving to the high side of nine, they're learning to relax their mind, to be more at peace, to be more at ease. That doesn't mean that they're giving up and they're not, you know, like, right. oh, let the world just be what it is. That they're just they're resting. So, you know, that maybe they're resting in God, mm. that God is gonna be sovereign in the moment and to show them. So their minds start to calm down. Maybe not to the point of a nine, right? Right. <laughs> um, but it's gonna have that demonstration to it. That's so interesting. So now we're 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 still in the mind triad. This is the last one here. Seven. Um, I, I mentioned scare themselves, five, six, and seven scare themselves, but I guess what is what is the seven afraid of? Yeah, they are they are petrified of dealing with their internal world. So anything that's negative, boring, um, you know, criticism, uh, missing out on something fun, um, they're and they're very sensitive actually. So criticism, like I said, is really hard. So they don't want to deal with all of that stuff. So like counseling would be really hard for a seven, having to really take an inner look. They are just looking for fun. So sevens kind of have what I kind of describe as an empty bucket inside. And so they kind of feel empty in there and they want to just fill it up. The problem is 
it has a bunch of holes at the bottom. So the more they fill it up, the more it just kind of pours out at the end. But the more that they savor the moment, because they're always looking to the next thing, kind of like Christmas, like you're anticipating Christmas. This is going to be exciting. And then you get there and you're like, really? That was it? Like, that was cool. The best descriptor I heard was like, when they're on vacation, they're thinking about the next vacation. Exactly. (laughs) So if we can get sevens Uh to kind of, in a sense, sit down in the moment, be present and savor that's the big word I use for sevens. I want you to savor the moment. My dad's a seven and he actually eats very slowly because he wants to savor the food, which is very mm. not seven-ish, but I love that picture. Like my dad is really trying to enjoy what he was looking forward to. And I think that's just such a healthy move for seven. So savoring the present moment that they've been looking forward to this moment, but be there, be grateful. And it's not because sevens can be very joyful and grateful on the outside but we want them to sit in the moment and to be grateful in that moment. And the more that they're able to do that, the more the holes kind of plug it, plug up. And we're still on this side you know, of heaven. So we're always going to need to be filled up, right? Especially as a seven, but it will be more um, filled up because of gratitude and savoring the moment. So that's really what sevens we want them to, to do. All right, Trollsters, that's all for the Enneagram this week. We'll be back next week with Beth McCord to talk about subtypes or instinctual variants of each number. Each number has three uh, variants. And then also we'll be talking about basic fears, basic desires of each type and some ways for us to get better, just be a better version of ourselves. Uh, If you're into what we're talking about, you can find Beth online at yourenneagramcoach.com. Or um, I, I think is a good resource is uh, EnneagramInstitute.com. I think they have a lot of free stuff up online and all the type descriptions and stuff that you can get into if you're interested. Um, but we'll be back next week with a ton more content. And uh, we hope you like it. <laughs>